This audio file is a production of the University of Chicago Law School. Visit us on the web at www.law.uchicago.edu. Good afternoon. I am delighted to see so many of my former students and current friends here today. And I'm delighted to welcome you to our annual First Monday Luncheon. Each fall, with the opening of a new Supreme Court term, we host this event, which gives members of our faculty the opportunity to share their insights with you about issues facing the Supreme Court. Before I introduce our speaker for this afternoon, I'd like to take just a minute to bring you up to date on the law school. As you know, I am here as the interim team. We've had two other interim deans in the past half century, David Curry and Richard Epstein, so I know I am in very good company. I don't know how much longer I will have the privilege of occupying my former office, but I hope and expect to be kicked back upstairs very soon. So here are a few headlines about the law school today. Uh, this year we welcome four new members of the faculty. Claudia Flores, who worked previously as a staff attorney at the ACLU, who worked with a program to combat human trafficking in Indonesia, and worked as a United Nations legal advisor to the governments of East Timor and Zimbabwe, has been appointed assistant clinical professor and director of our clinic on international human rights. Daniel Hemmel, who earned his JD from Yale, where he served as editor-in-chief of the Yale Law Journal, and then served as a law clerk to our very own Justice Elena Kagan, has been appointed an assistant professor. Daniel will teach in the areas of torts, torts, administrative law, and taxation. Genevieve Lackier, who earned her JD from NYU and her PhD in anthropology from the University of Chicago, will teach in the areas of constitutional law, criminal law, and employment discrimination. And I'm pleased to report that Genevieve has already published a highly influential article on the First Amendment in the Harvard Law Review. And finally, John Rappaport, who earned his JD magna cum laude from Harvard, where he served as articles editor of the Harvard Law Review, and who then served as a law clerk to Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, will teach in the areas of criminal procedure, federal jurisdiction, and evidence. Each of these new members of our faculty promises to be a star, and we are thrilled to welcome them to the law school. Should also say a word about our new entering class. We have 180 new JD students this fall. They have a median LSAT score of 170 and a median undergraduate GPA of 3.9. They come from 100 different undergraduate institutions from 34 states, and 29% of them are either African American, Asian American, or Hispanic American, reflecting a great advance over the years in the diversity of our student body. Of the students in the 2015 graduating class, 65% have joined law firms, 20% have clerkships, and 15% are working either for government or for public interest organizations. The law school now has 18 clinics, including clinics focusing on environmental law, police accountability, corporate lab, gendered violence, international human rights, immigrant rights, and two new clinics, which we started this year, one on technology and innovation, and the other under the direction of Professor David Strauss, focusing on cases in the Supreme Court of the United States. The scholarship faculty research in the law school today remains unparalleled. Our faculty is, and as it has been for many years, the most productive and the most influential of any law school in the nation. In addition, the faculty now, more than ever, is devoted to excellence in teaching. This is the product of many years of many deans' leadership, um, and unlike, to my knowledge, any other major law school in the nation, Chicago pays great attention to teaching. We will not, for example, hire a lateral professor, someone who's teaching at another law school, coming with tenure, unless they have visited at Chicago, taught our students, and taught our students successfully. Um, in hiring and in promotion, we pay a great deal of attention to teaching success. Um, we mentor our young faculty. Um, and it pays off. Um, the other night, out of curiosity, I looked at the course evaluations for all first-year courses taught by members of our faculty last fall. Um, and in a, on, a, on a scale of zero being poor and five being excellent, the median course evaluation 
by our students of our faculty was 4.72, which is yeah, pretty amazing. Um, the law school, in short, is truly in great shape. Um, and much of the credit for that belongs to our departed dean, Mike Schill, who did a spectacular job um, during his five and a half years here. Um, he created new programs, he hired new faculty, he retained faculty who were being uh, sought by others, um, and he just did a spectacular job, and we wish him great luck. I was pleased to see that his Oregon Ducks won yesterday, and uh, this is a big deal at Oregon uh, for football fans there, and so Mike's, uh, Mike's presidency still continues, a little bit risky because they're two and two so far, um, but it still continues for the time being. Um, Okay, with that, let me turn to the specific talents here before us today. Uh, Laura Weinrib graduated magna cum laude from Harvard College in 2000, where she served as editor-in-chief of the Harvard International Review. She then moved on to Harvard Law School, from which she also graduated magna cum laude in 2003, and served as editor-in-chief of the Harvard Civil Rights Civil Liberties Law Review. From 2003 to 2004, Laura served as a law clerk to Judge Thomas Ambro, and then, without breaking stride, she moved on to Princeton University, from which she earned her PhD in history in 2011, with her dissertation titled, The Liberal Compromise, Civil Liberties, Labor, and the Limits of State Power. That same year, Laura joined the faculty of our law school as an assistant professor of law, and she's also an associate member of our history department. Laura is a wonderful scholar. Her publications include, among many others, Civil Liberties Outside the Courts, published in the Supreme Court Review, The Sex Side of Civil Liberties, published in the Law and History Review, and a major forthcoming book with the Harvard University Press titled The Taming of Free Speech. Laura's scholarship has earned her several very impressive awards already, including the William Nelson Cromwell Prize, the Paul L. Murphy Award, and the Sorensen Prize, all from the American Society for Legal History. Laura is also a wonderful teacher. Her courses include, among others, labor law, American legal history, constitutional law, and public law and legal theory. I took the liberty of reading Laura's course evaluations. At the risk of embarrassing her, here are some representative comments. Quote, Laura Weinreb is engaging, interesting, and kind. Kind, I like that. <laughs> Professor Weinreb is awesome. I like that too. Professor Weinreb does a great job making the classroom open for discussion. This has been my favorite class of 1L year by far. There is no comparison. Professor Weinreb is a true gem. Not bad, Laura. Keep it up. It is my pleasure to introduce a true gem, Laura Weinreb. Thank you for that introduction, and uh, thanks to all of you for coming out today. Um, my remarks today are going to focus on a case that the Supreme Court will take up uh, sometime this term by the name of Friedrichs v. California Teachers Association. Uh, for those of you who follow the Supreme Court docket, it will be immediately obvious why labor and the First Amendment are in the title uh, of my talk for today. Um, it's going to take me a little longer to bring Lochner in, but I assure you that uh, we will get there before too long. The big issue in the Friedrichs case is whether the First Amendment prohibits unions from requiring non-members to pay what are known as agency fees or fair share fees, which contribute to the costs of collective bargaining activity. Now that question may sound somewhat esoteric, uh, but Friedrichs has tremendous implications for the labor movement, uh, for partisan politics, and for the scope of the First Amendment. I'm going to frame my analysis of Friedrichs around a curious transformation that scholars and Supreme Court commentators have observed in recent decades uh, with respect to the meaning of the First Amendment and the uses of the First Amendment. And that is a growing tendency to invoke the First Amendment as a deregulatory tool. Of course, to understand whether and how the First Amendment has changed, we have to have a baseline. As you've just heard, I'm a historian, so it'll come as no surprise to you that I'm going to talk a bit about the past today. Um, more precisely, I'm going to be talking about several different pasts. 
uh, several possible baselines. And I hope that in the process, I might convince you to rethink the history of the First Amendment, uh, and maybe even to rethink your preferences for its future. But first, some background on the Friedrichs case. Since the middle of the 20th century, the Supreme Court has interpreted federal private sector labor law to prohibit unions from requiring employees to join a union or to contribute financially to its political or ideological activities, such as lobbying. So that's been the baseline rule for the private sector. Uh, in its 1977 decision in Abood v. Uh, Detroit Board of Education, the court extended that rule to public sector employees. It held in Abood that it's inconsistent with the First Amendment to require public employees to join a union or to pay toward a union's political expenses. At the same time, the court in Abood expressly rejected the argument that the petitioners are making in Friedrichs, uh, namely that it also violates the First Amendment rights of non-members to require them to pay agency fees. Court deemed it constitutionally permissible for a state to authorize what's known as an agency shop in public employment and thus to require a public employee to contribute toward the union's chargeable expenses. And chargeable expenses are things like the cost uh, of collective bargaining, contract administration, and grievance adjustment. Now, the Supreme Court revisited this issue in Harris v. Quinn, which it decided in 2014. At the time, there was a good deal of speculation about whether the court's decision would overrule Abood. Uh, that is, the component of, of Abood uh, permitting agency fees. Uh, instead, uh, a five-justice majority ruled for the home health care workers who were challenging the agency fees in, this in that case, but they ruled for them on the narrow factual grounds that they were not what the court called full-fledged state employees. Now, some observers have inferred uh, that from, from that uh, outcome that there wasn't a fifth vote on the court to eliminate uh, agency fees altogether. That said, uh, the dicta in Harris v. Quinn was extremely critical of Abood, uh, so it's no surprise that Friedrichs is now before the court. Okay, the thrust of the non-member's argument in Friedrichs is that there's no constitutionally relevant distinction between lobbying government and bargaining with government. Their view is that the court got it right in Abood when it prohibited mandatory fees toward patently ideological activity, and it's time for the court to extend that logic to its chargeable, expen to chargeable expenses as well, uh, since the issues at stake in public sector collective bargaining invariably implicate important public interests. Now, I should just mention uh, that the petitioners have made an alternative argument in the case uh, in, uh, in the event that the court uh, declines to overrule Abood, uh, that unions should be permitted to collect contributions toward chargeable expenses from non-members only if they opt in to payments as opposed to requiring non-members to opt out as, uh, as current law provides. That question too raises some complicated First Amendment questions, uh, but it's a narrower issue with somewhat smaller stakes. So I'm going to focus on the major question in the case, namely whether agency fee arrangements are unconstitutional under the First Amendment. In deciding that question, the court faces a number of interesting puzzles. One question it will have to decide if it determines that there's the First Amendment activity uh, at stake here is what level of scrutiny to apply, and in particular, whether to apply Pickering balancing because the case involves public employees. That's an interesting issue. Uh, there are others, including some thorny procedural complications. But what I want to focus on today is the way that agency fees fit into a broader system for governing labor relations. And I want to add here that although Friedrichs involves only public sector workers, the court will, be also, will also be thinking very carefully about the application of its decision to private sector workers, since historically it has kept these two regimes roughly parallel. <clears throat> 
This is a big case on its own terms. Uh, union membership rate in the public sector was 35.7% in 2014, uh, compared with 6.6% in the private sector. But given that fewer than 10% of American workers are government employees, that still leaves a lot of unionized uh, workers on the table if the court decides Friedrichs for the non-members and then subsequently has to decide whether to extend the decision to private sector workers as well. Realistically, then, this case implicates the entire system of labor relations in the United States, system that has always had the First Amendment at its heart. The petitioners are asking the court to alter one crucial component of this system without adjusting the related provisions. But in my view, this is a situation in which pulling on one thread threatens to unravel the whole. Now, to understand why, you're going to need a short primer on labor law. The American labor law system is an unusual one, and it reflects a complicated balancing by legislatures and by the courts of individual and group rights, as well as uh, some broader structural issues. The current system requires employers to bargain with a union that has the support of a majority of its employees. At the same time, it shields employers from bargaining with multiple unions that are competing for recognition. It protects employers from negotiating and enforcing multiple contracts and from costly recognitional and secondary strikes. So there are some big advantages to our system of majority rule and exclusive bargaining for uh, ex exclusive representation for employers as well as uh, for employees. And in case uh, things don't turn out as the employees expected, uh, there's a safeguard built into the system. If a majority of employees are dissatisfied with the union, they can always vote to decertify it. Of course, as with any majority rule system, some employees will inevitably be represented by unions that they'd rather not be represented by, either because they prefer an alternative union or uh, more commonly because they oppose unions altogether. And today, labor law considers that to be an important concern uh, and takes it uh, into account uh, in ways I'll explain. Uh, but when the field was first developing, judges were primarily troubled by a different problem. At that time, an exclusive bargaining representative could exclude employees from membership on the basis of arbitrary criteria, including race or sex. And this imposed a huge burden on non-members since the union could negotiate a contract requiring non-members to be fired, what's known as the closed shop. Um, the closed shop was outlawed by statute in 1947, but it was still permissible in the early 1940s. So the solution that judges developed and that legislatures like California uh, have also uh, adopted by statute was to impose on unions what's called a duty of fair representation. Over time, that duty has evolved from its initial emphasis on racial uh, inclusion uh, to encompass other concerns as well. And today, the duty of fair representation prevents a union from discriminating against non-members, regardless of why they elected not to join the union. <clears throat> if the union negotiates a pay raise, non-members are included as well. When non-members file grievances, the union has to represent them just as vigorously as it represents members, uh, often, of course, at great cost. So that's the contemporary model of American labor law uh, in uh, an egregiously oversimplified uh, nutshell. Um, unions, uh, just to sort of to, to, to wrap this up, unions that secure the support of a majority of workers are authorized to bargain with the employer as the employee's exclusive representative. And in exchange, the state requires the union to represent the interests of non-members, even when it would be to the advantage of members to sacrifice the interest of those non-members in exchange for better benefits for themselves. OK, this brings me to the free rider problem, which makes frequent appearances in the court's decisions on agency fees. In the absence of a duty of fair representation, 
Non-members would have an incentive to join the union, lest they not be included in wage increases, uh, health plans, and other union-negotiated benefits. But given that the union has to treat non-members equally, many employees are disinclined to pay the 2 to 3 percent uh, of their paycheck to the union that these uh, dues arrangements require. Now, it's not that the employees are necessarily opposed to the union ideologically. Uh, it's that in many cases, for understandable reasons, they'd prefer not to pay the dues. And their incentive to free ride creates a vicious cycle. The fewer the, the number of dues-paying members, the less effective the union becomes, and the less eager the remaining members are to continue paying. Of course, the system under Abood, the system we have today, is not entirely immune from this problem. Even under current law, employees can opt out of payments of non-chargeable expenses. But since non-chargeable expenses are often relatively modest, many employees don't bother to opt out, either because of inertia or because the minor cost saving uh, doesn't justify forfeiting the perks of uh, full union membership, including the right to vote in the union election. By contrast, if they could escape payments altogether, it's likely uh, that many more people would give up union membership, um, and that's something that recent declines in union density uh, after passage of right-to-work laws uh, in many of our neighboring states uh, attest. So I hope it's clear now that the implications of this decision for the structure of American labor relations are significant. The case also has tremendous implications for partisan politics, since unions are among the major counterweights uh, to large Republican donors. But you might ask, what does the First Amendment have to do with all of this? Isn't this something for state legislatures to determine as a matter of policy? Now that question turns in large part on whether subsidizing bargaining activity can be fairly characterized as constitutionally relevant expression. Depending when you graduated law school and how closely you follow First Amendment law, a few examples might come to mind here. You might think of the mushroom growers in United States v. United Foods who were held to have a First Amendment right not to contribute uh, to a government-mandated advertising campaign. Or you might think of an example that's somewhat closer to home uh, and also to your wallets, uh, namely the compulsory uh, payment of membership dues in an integrated bar. Uh, that's an issue that most courts uh, have uh, upheld, but there have been a few state courts that have pushed back against that. And then, of course, many of you will immediately jump to campaign finance law, where the court has uh, most conspicuously eroded the distinction between financial contributions and speech. And yet, the court has proven reluctant to go down this path in the labor context. But why? If the non-members' claims seem plausible in comparison with these other cases, why have courts rejected them? One answer may simply be about timing, that money and forced subsidies have only recently attained the First Amendment status that they have today. That is, this case is part of a mounting push to challenge social and economic regulation through the guise of the First Amendment. Now, I don't think that this is a fully adequate explanation. I'll explain uh, why later, but I do think that this is one important part. And I'm going to digress here to explain what I mean. From the Second World War until the Rehnquist Court, uh, it was an article of faith among activists and academics that a strong First Amendment would preserve a platform for transformative political ideas. The dominant understanding of the First Amendment in casebooks and uh, in the popular imagination was infused with an aspirational commitment to participatory democracy, to minority rights, and to peaceful social change. This view, I think, was elegantly captured by Justice Brandeis's stirring proclamation in Whitney v. California, which I'll quote uh, for those of you who are hazy that it is hazardous to discourage thought, hope, and imagination, that fear breeds repression, that repression breeds hate, that hate 
menaces stable government, that the path of safety lies in the opportunity to discuss freely supposed grievances and proposed remedies, and that the fitting remedy for evil counsels is good ones. So this and other um, foundational formulations reflected an idealistic understanding of public discourse and of democratic deliberation. Uh, and the Warren Court invoked uh, this language and language like it heartily uh, as it celebrated unfettered expression and steadily expanded the reach of the First Amendment. In an era when other state and federal actors regularly targeted agitators, the judiciary was comparatively, comparatively friendly to the rights of dissenters. The celebrated cases of this period gave us the iconic First Amendment protagonists of the 20th century, socialist soapbox orators, civil rights marchers, and anti-war protesters. But sometime in the 1980s or 1990s, those celebrated First Amendment pioneers began to fade from view, and a new generation took their place. Instead of Eugene Debs, or Paul Robert Cohen, or the NAACP, the First Amendment claimants went by names like Central Hudson Gas and Electric Corporation, or First National Bank, or Citizens United, or recently, uh, Hobby Lobby Stores. And in the past few years, Researchers have documented and analyzed this transition. Uh, the empirical evidence suggests that half of First Amendment victories now go to business corporations and to trade groups challenging unwelcome regulatory interventions. Uh, the beneficiaries of First Amendment freedoms today are a far cry from those marginalized visionaries of past generations. Scholars have dubbed this transformation the Lochnerization of the First Amendment on the theory that businesses are using the First Amendment today to do the work that liberty of contract did in cases like Lochner v. New York, the uh, notorious 1905 Supreme Court decision invalidating a New York maximum hours law for bakers. That is, like liberty of contract <clears throat> excuse me, in the uh, progressive era, the First Amendment is being used today to dismantle burdensome regulatory regimes. And so we've arrived finally at the mysterious Lochner in the title uh, of my talk. Beginning in the 1980s and 1990s, a growing chorus of legal scholars described a shift in First Amendment law from the protection of disfavored minorities against state suppression to the insulation of industrial interests against government regulation. A broad range of legal scholars and cultural commentators have criticized the court's uh, persistent invalidation of legislative and administrative efforts to temper alleged corporate dominance. And I imagine that some of you share that view, that some of you regard the court's new direction as tragic or misguided. Others, no doubt, consider it a, consider it a desirable corrective to the, to the earlier decisions or a natural extension of their reasoning. This is a big debate, but I'm going to leave discussion of this question for another occasion. What I'd like to do with the remainder of my time today is to explore whether this new direction that's been documented was actually as new, as, as unexpected, uh, as contemporary observers assume. Now, my answer, as you've likely guessed, uh, is that it was not. On the contrary, the Lochnerization of the First Amendment began a very long time ago. In fact, almost the instant that Lochner itself was put to rest. It was embedded in the First Amendment at the moment that the so-called New Deal settlement was struck. So I'll just briefly review the conventional narrative here. Uh, with its decisions in West Coast Hotel v. Parrish and Jones and Lachlan Steele, the Supreme Court abandoned its Lochner-era practice of invalidating social and economic legislation on the grounds of freedom of contract or the limitations of the Commerce Clause. And then, two years later, in its famous fourth footnote in Caroline Products, the court flagged an exception to its new constitutional deference. It would continue to subject laws to exacting judicial scrutiny where they burdened the rights of minorities or infringed freedom of speech. 
Now, it's largely a forgotten feature of footnote four that it was invoked far more often in speech cases in its early years than in the race-based equal protection cases we now associate with it. It's even more thoroughly forgotten that the labor struggle was at the heart of the new arrangement. <clears throat> in fact, the first citation to footnote four of Caroline Products came in a 1940 labor case called Thornhill v. Alabama, in which Justice Frank Murphy upheld the right to picket as an expression of ideas. In Jones and Lachlan Steele, that case that came two years earlier, uh, the esteemed Justice Charles Evans Hughes had called the right of workers to organize a fundamental right. And in Thornhill, Justice Murphy went further. What he wrote was that free discussion, this is a quote, concerning the conditions in industry and the causes of labor disputes appears to us indispensable to the effective and intelligent use of the processes of popular government to shape the destiny of modern industrial society. When the Supreme Court decided the Thornhill case, the world took note. At a symposium on civil liberties in 1941, the renowned legal scholar Herbert Wexler described the Supreme Court decision, that term which incorporated the religion clause of the First Amendment, as comparatively unimportant. What was of central importance, he said, was the Supreme Court's decisions in the labor picketing cases, especially Thornhill v. Alabama, which he deemed to be of major significance. Now, Thornhill was neither an aberration, nor was it a judicial invention. Uh, the groups that litigated and publicized the foundational First Amendment cases of the New Deal period, groups like the ACLU, the American Bar Association, and even many newspapers, were centrally motivated by labor relations. The ACLU, which called itself uh, a frank partisan of labor, I'm quoting there, in its founding documents, um, promoted what it called a right of agitation. And the right of agitation, according to the ACLU, was a right of workers to picket, to boycott, and to strike. Now, the, today, the notion of a right to picket, boycott, and strike uh, that's independent of any regulatory regime seems fanciful. fanciful. Uh, but this was a period of widespread industrial violence and a wide range of civil liberties advocates within and outside government shared the ACLU's view that protecting these rights would forestall the extreme violence uh, that was associated with labor struggles abroad. The same impulse was behind the decision in the NLRA to mandate employer bargaining with unions, since the most disruptive strikes often involved demands for employer recognition. These were the issues that were in the public spotlight when the NLRA was debated and when the First Amendment took its modern form. Now, incredibly, advocates for Lochner-style property rights actually eventually signed on to the ACLU's program. In the run-up to the court packing plan, the ABA consulted some PR specialists. And the PR team uh, that they convened told them that the best way to defeat the court packing plan and other court curbing legislation was to start celebrating the civil liberties decisions that the ACLU had been bringing and that they had long opposed because they typically uh, advanced the interests of uh, socialists and labor radicals. Then, after the so-called switch in time uh, meant that property rights would no longer shield economic activity from state regulation, the National Association of Manufacturers and the U.S. Chamber of Commerce came on board too claiming First Amendment rights to distribute anti-union literature and uh, eventually a First Amendment right to work. Indeed, the drafters of the NLRA and the justices who decided Caroline Products all grappled with the possibility of a constitutional contest over labor relations, very much like what we're seeing today. 
Now, I know that these are ambitious and unfamiliar claims. Um, they're claims that I elaborate in detail in my forthcoming book on the origins of the modern understanding of civil liberties, as well as uh, in several articles. For today, I'm going to have to ask you just to take my word for it. Because what I want to do is I want to spend the remainder of my time on a question that's a postscript to my own historical research and which bears directly on the non-members' claims in Friedrichs. If the First Amendment was Lochnerized from the start, why has it taken 75 years for cases like Friedrichs to prevail in the courts? Now, it's a deep irony <clears throat> of the interwar civil liberties movement that its entire purpose was to inscribe into law a First Amendment right to picket, boycott, and strike, and yet those rights were written out of the First Amendment almost as soon as Caroline Products was decided. As the labor law uh, casebook I teach from puts the point, I'm quoting, labor union speech receives less First Amendment protection than that of other activists. This is sort of taken uh, as a point of faith. Same point could be made for the entire labor law regime. In fact, the court has declined to recognize First Amendment claims that would be open and shut outside the labor context. For example, the NLRA prohibits recognitional picketing by outside unions for a designated period after a union wins uh, a representation election or signs a contract with an employer. The same goes for secondary picketing and boycotts, and many states go even further, expressly prohibiting strikes for public sector workers and the picketing that goes along with it. In the ordinary political context, of course, picketing is quintessential First Amendment activity, and declining to protect it would be virtually unthinkable. Labor picketing, labor boycotts, and union associational activity are all routinely curbed by the state. Now this outcome would have been a tremendous surprise to the interwar advocates of civil liberties. By the end of the New Deal, as the Thornhill case suggests, all the signs pointed the other way. There were comparatively few advocates for a duty of fair representation, whether statutory or constitutional, and within the New Deal administration, at least, the closed shop was widely accepted as a legitimate outcome of workplace democracy. When the ACLU defended Henry Ford's right to distribute anti-union literature in the 1930s, for example, it did so because it believed that insulating employer pressure from regulatory intervention would make it impossible for the state to curb labor's right to engage in secondary activity or mass picketing on the traditional ground that such activity was coercive. The First Amendment that they envisioned was surprisingly like the one that the petitioners in Friedrichs are proposing today. But within a couple of years, a series of Supreme Court cases, including Milk Wagon Drivers v. Meadowmore Dairies, a 1941 case, started making exceptions to the First Amendment status of labor activity. When striker, strikes or pickets were most effective and therefore most coercive, they lost their protected status. In 1943, even the renowned First Amendment theorist and staunch ACLU supporter, Zachariah Chafee, quote, doubted whether the picketing involved in the Thornhill case should be constitutionally protected. And Chafee deemed a broad range of labor activity to be beyond the realm of what he called privileged free speech. In upholding a state uh, injunction against peaceful picketing in Teamsters Union v. Vote, Felix Frankfurter, and Frankfurter had once worked with the ACLU to pass the Norris LaGuardia Act, uh, Frankfurter explained on behalf of the Supreme Court majority that labor activity was not immune from state regulation. The dissent in that case described the opinion as a formal surrender. The law was back where it started before the famous New Deal cases were decided. 
As the Roberts Court has forged ahead with the Lochnerization of the First Amendment, it has begun to expand constitutional protections for employees who object to the payment of union dues. It has curtailed the ability of public sector unions to collect payments toward ideological activity by adjusting the default rules of non-member contributions. And it has reduced the class of state-funded workers covered by Abood. Thus far, though, it has declined to turn the tables. It has rejected unions' freedom of association claims, and it has accepted statutory restrictions on secondary activity and the right to strike. One might imagine that this one-sided First Amendment expansion will prove difficult to contain. In fact, lower courts have already begun to narrow the class of secondary activities subject to regulation. If the court accepts the non-members' arguments in Friedrichs, all public employees will be in the same situation as private sector workers in so-called right-to-work states, which prohibit unions from collecting even fair share fees from non-members. In that new regime, the dues-paying members may object to representing non-members. They may feel that the government is forcing them to subsidize the speech of non-members. They may feel that their First Amendment right to determine the content of their negotiations with the government is at stake. Unions and their opponents are each going to have to decide whether robust First Amendment review of labor law would ultimately serve their interests or undermine them. As a doctrinal matter, when the court decides Friedrichs, even accepting that the payment of agency fees might constitute expression, wouldn't settle the matter. The court is going to have to look at the extent of the state's interest in the current speech restrictive arrangement. Now that arrangement was responding to a historical world that has slipped from view. And it's impossible to say whether the dangers it addressed would reemerge if the system were undone today. To dampen industrial unrest and facilitate American economic growth during the post-war period, the courts constrained the operation of the First Amendment in the labor context and developed a complicated labor law regime to balance employer and employee rights. From the union's perspective, labor peace justifies exclusive bargaining and majority representation. Exclusive bargaining and majority representation justify the prohibition on the closed shop and the imposition of a duty of fair representation. And the duty of fair representation justifies agency fees. The non-members, in turn, are arguing that there's no evidence that agency fees are necessary to union survival and that there is no free rider problem because the position taken by many employees, exclusive bargaining uh, representatives, is inconsistent with their own interests or preferences. They also argue that unions are free to negotiate on behalf of non-members as long as they give up exclusivity and presumably also the duty to bargain. These are hard questions, normatively and doctrinally. Uh, in previous cases, Justice Scalia has indicated that the calculation that the union has described is a permissible one for the state to make. Uh, what he reasoned is that the law created the free rider problem, and those states that permit unions to recover agency fees do so to mitigate a problem of their own making. Practically speaking, the outcome of the Friedrichs case is likely to turn on whether Justice Scalia has changed his mind. Now, as a historian, I'm not in the business of making predictions. Uh, what I'm going to say is only that I think it's at least conceivable that an interest in preserving our carefully crafted framework for maintaining labor peace will move the court to uphold Abood. But I want to leave off with a different argument the one that likely motivated Justice Frankfurter and his fellow justices to cabin the operation of the First Amendment in the mid-20th century, at a time before commercial speech or campaign finance or federal contraception mandates were even on the table, when the rights of labor were at the vanguard of the First Amendment's new deregulatory thrust.
In the 1940s, critics worried that the court's invigoration of the First Amendment would reopen the door to judicial usurpation of the police power. Just months after the Thornhill decision came down, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce highlighted the potential benefits of constitutional protection for commercial speech. Soon, the Newspaper Publishers Committee sent the ABA Committee on the Bill of Rights examples of its weekly advertisement printed in newspapers throughout the country, advising their readers about the importance of a free press in maintaining our kind of democracy. And in June 1941, Samuel Penningill admonished his audience at the annual meeting of the Chamber of Commerce of the United States to uphold the rights of the individual and of the minority. Those were his terms. <clears throat> Pettingill went on to denounce the closed shop and to defend the right of strike breakers to cross the picket line, calling the equal right to work the first right of all. Now, it's only fitting that I wrap up my remarks today with the observations of one of my esteemed predecessors at the law school, a labor, labor scholar uh, known uh, affectionately as Charlie Gregory, who taught at the University of Chicago from 1930 to 1949. Gregory captured the dominant sentiment among labor scholars when he described the Thornhill case as a dangerous development in a 1940 article in the Journal of the American Bar Association. True liberals in this country no longer look askance at economic compulsion, Gregory explained. But, and I'm quoting again here, to call such coercion constitutionally guaranteed freedom of speech is a perversion of an American ideal. To Gregory, the First Amendment was meant to protect intellectual expression and education, not economic activity. He reflected, for years, the old court was under fire because of its doctrine of substantive due process, which it developed to make possible the invalidation of local legislative experiments. It now seems from the picketing cases of last spring that the new court is perpetuating this error by using the 14th Amendment to establish its conception of the guarantees of liberty set forth in the First Amendment. Gregory, that is, was lamenting the Lochnerization of the First Amendment. What he saw as the distortion of a, of a constitutional ideal in the service of unsettling government efforts to regulate labor relations. At the very least, it's worth taking Gregory's critique seriously when we shape the path forward for the First Amendment today. And with that, uh, I'd be delighted to take your questions. in my presentation today is this distinction between public and private sector unions. And it's obviously a distinction uh, with, uh, with major consequences. I, I've just been reminded I'm supposed to repeat the question, which was um, about when uh, public sector unions um, came on uh, the scene um, and whether they aren't uh, a relatively new uh, arrival. And, and the answer in some sense is yes, although organizing in the public sector uh, has happened for a very long time. The most uh, famous early example is probably the 1919 Boston police strike, um, which, um, as you might imagine, did not give uh, public sector organizing a very uh, good name um, and uh, dissuaded uh, a lot 
of efforts to organize for a long time. Public sector teachers unions also uh, arrived relatively early. Uh, there were efforts to organize um, and a lot of pushback because the idea was that uh, teachers were supposed to represent um, the public, uh, represent uh, the interest in education of students rather than uh, their own economic interests. And there was a, a really lively debate uh, about that question. Um, as a sort of matter of when uh, public sector unions um, started to bargain in any meaningful sense, it really happened at mid-century after the private sector, um, after the National Labor Relations Act and Railway Labor Act had made uh, collective bargaining seem routine in the private sector. Uh, and basically there was uh, a feeling that uh, that uh, collective bargaining brought a lot of advantages with it, that uh, eliminating recognitional picketing uh, uh, reduced labor strife, that there was predictability in it from the employer's perspective, um, and that uh, it was good to have a, a single voice to represent union demands. Um, also a lot of economic uh, research began to emerge that showed that productivity tended to increase in unionized uh, workplaces. Um, so all of these things uh, sort of routinized collective of bargaining in a way that made it appealing in the in the public uh, sector as well. If there, oh. <laughs> yes, please. If uh, Friedrichs is decided in favor of the plaintiffs, should shareholders or corporations? Have the same First Amendment rights? It's a, it's a great question. This is a this is a oh I'm sorry. So the question is whether uh, this should be accept so whether uh, rights to opt out um, and you know I can sort of broaden this because it's a, a question that's been debated whether um, shareholders should have corresponding rights to opt out of uh, the policies uh, and political donations, presumably, of uh, corporate general funds, uh, which, is, which is a question that's been uh, debated a lot. Um, and you know, I think my, my uh, reaction is to say it's very difficult to find a meaningful uh, distinction uh, between the two that um, it, you know, basically the Supreme Court has authorized uh, the um, has authorized corporations to uh, spend corporate funds without buy-in from their shareholders. There's no opt uh, opt out right there. Why hasn't this been extended? You know, this this pertains more to the opt-in opt-out question that I said was a sort of subsidiary question in my remarks for today. Um, I you know I think that there's a very uh, plausible argument that that's uh, going to have to be extended. Although there might be policy distinctions between the two um, that influence the government interest side of the equation. This audio file is a production of the University of Chicago Law School. Visit us on the web at www.law.uchicago.edu.